Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. November 13th, 2020, episode number 160. It is Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, uh, just after Halloween. It's pretty solid. Uh, I always love Friday the 13th. I thought you loved Halloween. I love Halloween, which Friday the 13th is very Halloween-ish, so... Okay. Are you dressing up? No, I don't... No. Only Halloween. Well, unless there's like some crazy thing that, that you need to dress up for, but... No. Okay. All I right. have no plans to dress up for this uh, this Friday the 13th. Episode 160, Carter. 160. That is a huge number. That means we've done this 160 times. Almost three years. Almost three years. Coming up on it. It's like a couple episodes away, actually. And guess what? What? I'm coming down to see you You this weekend. Let's talk about that. Are we going to celebrate our our third anniversary or what? Let's get into that. Yeah, so you you had plans to come down. Um, There was a a trip that we were going to plan to take. Didn't pan out. Didn't pan out, but that's okay. It might happen eventually. It's not canceled. Just postponed, uh, and we're probably still going to be doing some stuff. Uh, but you had planned to come along, but you're still going to come down. We're still going to do some content. We're still going to make some stuff for our patrons. You're going to come down. We're going to have fun. I told you I'm going to take you paddleboarding. You've never been paddleboarding. I've uh, never done that. And I got paddleboards that I bought for Christmas last year that I haven't used yet. Got to use this year, so we're going to bust those out. We're going to ha- go have some fun on the water, um, and we're going to get some stuff done made for our patrons and, and maybe some other things that we won't talk about just yet. You never know. So you never. I'm do excited. Know. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's November. It's it's actually decent weather here in Oklahoma right now after the ice storm has moved through. Um, but I'm, I'm ready to come down there. Hopefully, there's no gators in the water. You take me out on the paddleboard, <laughs> and I can get some good seafood in me. Yes, and just hang out with you and Winnie Cooper and Boo uh, and Boo. There you go. And of course the uh, the cat. Ziggy. We, 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 don't talk, we don't talk about Ziggy Marley too much. but <laughs> It's not Ziggy Marley. It's just Ziggy. Yeah, dude. It'll be a good time. Always a good time hanging out with the dudes. Um, and uh, I look forward to making some of the content we're going to make. So uh, let's get into this week's episode. Cause hold on. Hold on a second. What? Hold on a second. I want to say thanks to Dale Jones. Dale uh, Jones listens to our podcast. He also listens to that other one, you know, that tank slapping one. Yes, he does. Uh, but he listens to him while he runs, and he said it makes the time go by faster. So he says most of the time the episodes are around an hour, so he knows when the episode's done, he can head back home. So yeah. uh, Dale Jones, supporting our podcast, uh, man, thanks a lot. Absolutely, and I was definitely going to get into that. Like, it's it's unreal when, when people in those kind of roles, you know, with that kind of experience are liking what we're doing and uh, support us. So shout out to Dale Jones, shout out to the whole AFT crew, but uh, Dale Jones especially, man. He called and I talked to him for about, we bench raced for two hours and I've never even thrown a leg over a bike. I'm bench racing with somebody like Dale Jones. It was super cool. Um, And And, uh, and for those that don't know, Dale Jones is a tech official with the AFT staff and he's been there for a long time. He used to race, he was number 10K and he was also Davey Camlin's best friend and he traveled with Davey. Uh, until the end of his career not only him uh there's some really good stories on the, the competition side there at aft so hopefully we'll get some of them on uh dale jones himself uh daryl brentlinger is another one that uh that is really good hopefully we'll be bringing those guys on in the, in the months ahead and letting them tell their stories because uh, they're badass stories for sure and they do it because they love the sport 100 percent, maybe 90 percent, because you know you gotta make money but um anyways well let's get into this week's episode dude because holy shit it's a doozy so we've actually going to have two guests. Yeah. And yeah. there's an upcoming event mm-hmm. out in Sonoma, California next weekend. Not yeah. this weekend, but next weekend. I believe it's the 19th and the 20th. Yep. Uh, maybe maybe the 20th and 21st. Anyways, next weekend mm-hmm. out in Sonoma. 
the first ever AMA all adaptive race. That's so cool. So when we started thinking about this, the first person that we that came to mind is our buddy Race and Jason Griffin, who's yep. trying to change his nickname. <laughs> is he really we'll trying to change? Happens. I love it. Why? Yeah, change it? he he told he told us on the last podcast. Oh, it was like lightning something or something. Else. Lightning. Yeah, exactly. Or something. It was a lightning. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. So <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we'll make a deal with him while we have him on the phone. On I the phone. It. So I think we call him up first. Yep. And see a little bit more information about the race. Hundred percent. Always good to talk to Race and Jason Griffin or whatever we're going to call him in the near future if he wants to change the name to Lightning or whatever it is. Um, he's Jason. We'll just call him Jason for now. You want to give him a call? Dial him up. Let's do it. Hello, Race and Jason. Hey man, what's going on? Nothing. What are you doing? I am tearing apart motorcycles. Believe that. It you're, you're tearing them apart. Aren't we? Are we racing next weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, this is different. This is a this is a hooligan bike and a 450 that I've been uh, I've been I've been helping this kid out race. Uh, got a lot of better talent. Levi Robinson. He's uh he's got a lot of natural ability. I've got good things for him. What you been up to, man? How's everything been going? It's pretty good. It's kind of quiet on the home front. I guess haven't done much. I guess uh, since the Daytona season finale, I did uh, Bubba Blackwell's jump the weekend after down there in uh, Laurel, Mississippi. And then since then, uh, not a whole lot's been going on. Um, I- I'm excited to talk to you because I'm hearing great big things about this big race coming up next weekend. First time ever AMA flat track all adaptive race. How cool is that? Yeah. Man? Sherman Lee has been. Uh... He's been spearheading it. He's going to be competing. And uh, we talked. I joked about him. He called, I guess he called me, I don't know, probably we've been back and forth for the last couple of years. It finally, it finally just came to be. And uh, I guess it's been about a year, and he called out. And i just, I just forgotten about it. I said, I said who, who put that crazy idea in your head? He said, you did, man. Appreciate it. He said, yeah. you coming? I was like, yeah. Let's do it. I said, from South Carolina, let's get it. Let's go to California. So it's in Sonoma, it's good, man. It's in Sonoma. Do you know about the track? Have you seen the track? No, no. We are uh, maybe similar to Paris, and maybe similar to. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Somebody said it was similar to Paris, which I've never I've never competed in either one of those. So uh, I'm going to go by. I think Sherman is near. He's a few hours from there, and I think he's uh, he's pretty familiar with the track. So we've got a. Uh, I think 15 athletes. And, oh, um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Listen, uh, Mert Lawwell has kicked in with some sponsorship. Um, gosh. Uh, Rod Lake, Dallas, uh, was it, uh, what's, what, Dallas Roofing Systems. Uh, mm-hmm. they, 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 they kicked in. And uh, Sherman's doing all this. I'd, uh, we'd put, did a little GoFundMe, uh, like a GoFundMe page. And we were going to, uh, we'd just been raising money to put together for the athletes. It's, uh, this is the first time this has ever been done. And I, I was, just, I was, I was talking to Sherman. I said, you know, I said, nobody's ever done this. This is, uh, this is, this is, this is going to be cool. And the more I think about it, the more excited I get. It's going to be cool, man. I, I, and hopefully we can do it every year. I think this might, you know, if we, if we can keep it going, I think, I think it'll be great. What, uh, what bike are you riding? Your 450? Or you're going to ride your big hooligan bike? No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to put the Ducati out there. I, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that that Ducati, man, that thing is just. Uh, that thing is smooth. It just handles good. It's just it's easy to ride. So it makes me look fast. I'll take it. 
you you don't have anything to make you look fast. You are fast, dude. Um, do yeah. you know Do you know if it's going to be covered anywhere? Can we watch it, or how can we pay attention to it? Should we just watch Facebook? We're going to stream it on Facebook Live, just like uh, it's Jason Griffin Racing. And uh, let's see. Sherman just texted me, and he said, let's see here. The race will be streamed online at X as in Zebra, S as in Superstar, R as in Radical, and A as in Awesome, dot TV, or XSRA dot TV. Uh, Perfect. That's, uh, Perfect. That's, that's something new to me. I, I've never heard of those guys. You? Nope, not me either, but I was looking at the, the, the GoFundMe page, and, and Roo Systems of Dallas, Texas, Rod Lake Racing, Russ Brown Motorcycle Attorneys, Lang Bros Leathers, Alamo uh, Alarm Company, which they support the, uh, the, the Lodi Cycle Bowl in Sacramento, and you know a host of others, and like you said, all the GoFundMe stuff. Um, so it sounds like you're up to 15. Originally, I saw it was 10, 10 people. Do you know anybody else that you're competing against besides Sherman Lee? A girl named Kiana Clay is going to mm-hmm. be out there. And yep. uh, she's motocross. There's guys from road racing. There's guys from uh, uh, there's guys from motocross. And uh, I don't know. I think Sherman, Sherman and I and uh, Jake McCulloch. Uh, Jake McCulloch runs that. Uh, he runs one of those Merc prosthetic arms, which mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. And right. uh, he's going to be there. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in a while, but uh, it's it's really cool. And it's really cool how everybody has has chipped in. It's just, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't even know what to say. We're just, I'm excited about going. It's it's, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. And uh, I really think we can raise some awareness because, I mean, there's just a handful of people. There's probably just a handful of amputees that, that, that are cyclists. I mean, I don't even know what the percentage is, but uh, right. it just uh, it just lets you know, you know, it, it, does, it doesn't matter what you call a disability. We'll just call it an excuse. What your excuse is, uh, there's always... <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's all. There's always a way. Where it's like, well, yeah, I can't do this. I can't do that. I was like, yeah, you can. <laughs> you, That's right. Yeah, you can't. You can't. So That's it's right. gonna be cool, man. California. I don't know. California's California. It's uh, yep. It's, yep. it'll be seventy, seventy, and sunny every day. We've uh, uh, I just opened up a compound up in uh, uh, upstate South Carolina. We've got uh, um mountain bike trails in the backyard and we're going to yeah. do like mini bike races and cool. uh i'm just kind of been working on the farm and we've kind of been getting that going on around here but uh um mo from lang brothers just sent me my leathers and they are uh they are awesome uh i've been working with her because i'm a helite distributor for those helite air vests right so we just uh we're incorporating the the, the air suits into the leathers i've got some youth models coming in uh hooked up uh uh aj thompson's boy he's like 12 or 13 but we just Mm -hmm. got the we just got the smaller ones in and for the kids those things are just super cool i mean you know you just really 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 fortunate to get them i got hit by a car about three months ago and i bounced off the door so i got to test drive it in person (laughs) i guarantee they work awesome so can you tease me on on your letters uh what's the new color scheme or same same old colors what are we looking for they are black and chrome and got yellow lighting bulbs on the legs Oh yeah, lightning! I said, I said, I said, make me look like a disco. I, I, we'll see. We'll see. I think, I think, I think the uh, racing <laughs> Jason's probably going to stick. I know. I'll never let that down. Will I? Be like, nope. Man, you can't just go out. You can't just go out and change your nickname. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can if you're fast enough, I guess. I mean, if yeah, you, maybe no, if you yeah, well, may, <laughs> if you win if you win this race, maybe we 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 change your nickname. All right. All right. <laughs> I, I was like, anyways, <laughs> before before I let you go. You're the first part of this episode, but 
you're coming on right before the man himself, Mert Lawwell. How's that make you feel? Rock on, dude. What an honor. That guy's like super legendary. He has done yeah. so many good things for, for the community. I think he used to work for like Yeti Bikes. Uh, yep. Used to, yeah, build some, he, used to build some fast Harleys. Yeah, he built some fast mountain bikes, too. Anyways, hey, man, thanks for, for stopping by. Tell us about the all-adaptive race. Good luck out there in California, and uh, keep it on two wheels. Listen, hey, thank you so much, Scotty. I really appreciate you, man. Y'all take care. I'll see you soon. Solid. Solid. Always solid, dude. Like That's, You've been saying that all day today. I'm Is that your favorite word today? What, solid or dude? Yeah, solid. Oh, yeah, solid, solid today i guess it's that's my word what all right I, dude when dude. i got st- <laughs> when i first started announcing i would get stuck on words like uh i, I remember i was in kilgore texas yeah and i got stuck at on coming at you coming like, at coming you. at you off a of tournament four or coming at you off a of tournament two I, I said it over and over yeah and somebody finally texted me <laughs> It said, "Stop saying." Call me out. Call me yeah. out. And you know, I was still a rookie, and uh, I was like, "Man, I was saying it every lap almost." It's crazy, it man. I uh, I've started doing making my own content where I'm sitting there like talking, and I go back and watch it. And I'm like, I should never be on a microphone because I say uh, I say um a lot. Five, but the the podcast, I yeah. get to cut it out. So the uh and the um. Mm-hmm. Are just kind of like filler words 100%. while you're trying to think of what else to say. Yep. And I was taught that. Um, I just said um. I was taught that in Chicago when I worked for Monster Jam, actually. Yeah. And it's something that I I focused on really hard at first. Now I don't even think about it. I just keep talking. So your brain has to stay a few steps ahead of your mouth. If yeah. that makes any sense. I can never separate the two, and my mouth usually way ahead of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but whatever. That's why I like to edit these things because I can make myself sound a little better. But whatever. Um, All right. So those who heard the end of that first interview know what's up next. And what we're like five, six hours after we did this interview, and I'm still like, ah, like shaking. I, like, sorry. I'll have to, I'll have to admit, Carter. I was nervous about this one, oh, and dude. I don't normally get nervous when we talk to very many people. Uh, I. I just was nervous because I, I really don't know Mert right. that well. Yeah. I think I met him in passing a couple times. I don't even know that he could pick me out of a crowd. Yeah. But he was gracious enough to take the time to talk to us. Yeah. And I can't wait for you fans to hear this interview. Oh, dude. I mean, the guy's 80 years old, sharp as a tack. Like, he, he got so much content there into, like, a 30, 40-minute interview. I, I cannot wait for people to hear it. And I, I don't know what else to even say about it, dude. Like... You just sense he's an amazing human being. When you and I were going into this uh, interview, we're looking at all the stuff. We struggle with this a lot. Like, how do you get everything in one like interview? You can't. It's impossible. But we tried to capture as much as we could and uh, kind of let Mert tell us who he is and what he's been through. Um, so look forward to the fans hearing this one for sure. Yeah, I, I really wanted to find out where he's from, You know how he got started in, in racing, Always. and then how he ended up in California. And I touched on some of the highlights of his career. I know there's so many more stories we could talk about his racing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We kind of left the uh, On Any Sunday out of it just a little bit until the very end. One of our our, uh, patrons asked us one specific question, and we'll get into that too. Yeah. And, uh, man, I just... I'm I'm, I'm just giddy right now just because of our interview today. So uh, let's call him up. Let's do it. 
Hello. Mert Lawwell, this is Scotty Dubler. How are you doing? Pretty good, Scotty. I am honored you would uh, take time to talk to me on my podcast, and uh, I'd like to just dive in and get right to it. Is that okay with you? You bet. Let's go for it. All right. So my first question is, where was the legend born? Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. What's it like growing up there? Well, it's kind of like a baby Denver, actually, but okay. it's a lot different nowadays than it was when I was there. I mean, it was pretty much of a little hick town back in the day. Yeah, so how, how did you get into motorcycles? Was it up there in Idaho? Yes, it was uh, uh, in Boise there. Yeah, my brother came home uh, with, a, with a little uh, corgi. Uh, do you know what, the, what a corgi is? Uh, it's a dog, isn't it? Well, they make a dog with that name, <laughs> but this is a little scooter that they made for the military. Okay. And what did, the handlebars fold down and the seat folds down, and they threw it out of the back of the airplane at World War II so that the uh, soldiers would have something to ride when they got to the... Uh, wow. Bottom of their uh, their jump. Yeah. So it was it was primarily made for the military. At any rate, my brother came home with one one day, and that was my first introduction to wheels. And that would have been about oh probably about 1948 somewhere around there. Oh my goodness! So when did you decide you wanted to try to race one of those things? Well, I don't know why I wanted to. I just uh, my brother had interest in racing, but he was not a racer at all. But uh, anyway, he took me to a, a, a car race. Uh, on a flat track way back in the uh, late 40s. And uh, I just somehow uh, grew an interest in it, and I just wanted to go racing. I wanted to be a part of that myself. Okay. So I started so, riding this little scooter, and the more I rode it, why, the better I got at it. And pretty soon I discovered, well, I was better than my friends were at doing it. So I just concentrated on it more and more. Okay. And pretty soon I I just focused my whole life around being a racer. Wow. So what was it about... I mean, did you did you keep racing there in Boise? Because I heard the the story about when you went out to Ascot and moved out there for the first time. Um, how long did you race in Boise before you went to California? Well, I was 21 when I left Boise, and when I left there, I belonged to the local motorcycle club, the Hawaii Motorcycle Club. Okay. And uh, I I was winning most of the races, not all of them, but I won most of them. And so uh, I had a printing instructor. I was learning how to run printing presses at the, uh, at the high school there. And uh, he says, hey, if you want to race, you've got to go to, to uh, Ascot. And uh, so I kind of I, I loaded up my car and, and went to Ascot. And uh, I'll never forget my first night there because when I left Boise, everybody says, oh, those California guys, they're going to eat you up. You don't have a chance. You, you'll be back here in a month. And uh, so I went down there, and I remember I got a, at the for my first heat, heat race, I got a uh, real good hole shot, and I was uh, uh, first into turn one and, and going down the back straightaway, I was running first, and I thought, oh, man, that's not so hard after all. And I went into turn three, and they came by me on both sides. Oh, my gosh. And I so, went, oh, man, I, I was just in shock. I said, this can't be. I'm, I'm used to winning races, not being just plowed under like that. So I, uh, I studied uh, how to... Uh, how to ride the motorcycle at Ascot, because it's very different than any other racetrack. And uh, I just studied it and learned how to do it, and by the end, middle of the year, why, I was qualifying for the expert trophy dash. Oh, my gosh. And I was just what? a junior at the time. <laughs> I, I, we could spend the whole episode just on Ascot, but what was it like racing that legendary track? Well, uh, it was very different. And the reason it was different is because it had so much traction. And so with that much traction, well, you'd go around the corner faster, of course. 
So you go down the straightaway and you, you come into the, the turn, either turn one or turn three, you'd come in and you'd be going you know, way over your head, you know, way too fast. But you learned had to learn how to go ahead and grab a handful of throttle and kick the thing sideways because we had no brakes in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we kicked it sideways and, and turned the throttle wide open. And that was the hardest thing to learn how to do was to go into a corner already over your head going too fast and then have to reach over and grab a handful of throttle <laughs> in order to turn the bike and make it. Wow. Who who were some of the fast guys that, that you had to race against when you first went out there? Oh, there was Elliot Schultz. Well, you mean in the junior class or in the expert classes? They had the, what they called the BSA wrecking crew, which was Al Gunner and Neil Keane and uh, mm-hmm. uh, a few of the other guys. can't think of them right now. At any rate, uh, you know, they were winning everything, and Al Gunner. So uh, Al Gunner and I became friends, and uh, he began to help me. And by help, why he would he would tell me modifications that I should make to my chassis to make it handle better uh, for Ascot. Uh, because being that he had to, it was long straightaways and tight corners, he had to turn real quick. Why uh, we changed the geometry of the uh, of the frame. You know, we cut and welded and modified the, the frames. And every time we'd do that, well, I would just go a little bit faster. You know, I had wow. still the same restrictions, but I would go faster. Until I finally, in the middle of the year, I started making the expert trophy dash, which was unheard of in those days for an, a, an amateur or junior we were then, you mm-hmm. know, to, to make the expert uh, trophy dash. But uh, wow. as soon as I started doing that, my help stopped. I had to figure it all out <laughs> for myself. And, in, in those days, it was a lot different than now because, uh, you know, we made our living racing the motorcycle. So anything that you learned, you kept to yourself. You didn't tell anybody. So everything was secret. Mm-hmm. You know, like what gear ratio you're using or what tire pressure or anything like that. Right. And uh, so uh, that made, it, made the learning curve a little more difficult. But it also made me study harder, too. Right. I love that. I love it. So uh, according to my research, you uh, wrote for Harley-Davidson, or Harley-Davidson had sponsored you from 1964 to 1977. So how did that opportunity come about? Was it because you were so fast and, and making those main you know, main events and dash for caches as a junior? Well, uh, that, that caught the attention of uh, Dudley Perkins, who was the Harley-Davidson dealer in San Francisco. Okay. And every Friday night he would fly down to uh, Los Angeles to watch the race. And uh, so since he was down there every night, why uh, I became friends with him. And he offered me a ride at the end of the year. And I was riding BSA at the time, but I was my own mechanic. I didn't have funding, and uh, BSA was not helping anybody. And uh, so I uh, I had to do all my own work, and it wasn't all that good. I was still a, still a kid then, really. Uh-huh. But... Uh, my friends talked me into it, and obviously, as you can tell by the history, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Yeah, that's that's one thing I noticed, too, looking at the, at the history books. You won every one of your nationals, which were 15 national wins, all on Harley-Davidson's. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Wow. And well, I, I, national- I was only riding Harley because, like I said, BSA was – they were only helping one guy. They helped uh, Al Gunner a little bit, and they helped uh, Dick Mann. But there was no help for anybody else, so – we had to do it on our own. Okay. All right. So you, you won your first national at at the Sacramento Mile. Tell me about that day. Well, you know, that's pretty interesting because um, a couple of years before that, I left Boise and just traveled down to Sacramento to watch uh, my first professional uh, race, 
uh, first uh, national, I mean. And uh, I remember I walked in by the grandstand, and I heard the announcer, which was Roxy Rockwood at the time, right. and he said, and they're going 115 miles an hour. And I went in there and looked up, and all I could see was Rest Weber coming down, and all you could see was a number plate. He was so tucked in. And um, he got to the corner, and I said, man, you're going 115. You got This is a corner. you got to turn. And he just raised up and clicked the thing sideways. And oh. my heart left me. I said, no way. People can't do that. That's impossible. Right. And uh, five years later, I win it. <laughs> That's incredible. And your parents were there to watch you win. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. They By that time, I started to win quite a few races. So they they actually tried to keep me from riding motorcycles in the beginning. But at the end, why they were my, my strongest fans, for sure. That's amazing. Uh, you won your only championship in 1969, winning three races that year. Uh, do you think winning a championship solidifies a rider as a legend in this sport? Because Steve Moorhead won 23 national wins, no championship. Will Davis, you know, his his career got cut short, but he won 31 nationals with no championship. So do you think that solidifies you as as a legend in our sport, or do you think that even matters? Oh, I don't know if that matters. Uh, I mean, it, sure, it does. you gotta got to win nationals for sure. But, uh, you know, it was my life, and I, I was dedicated to it. That's that's all I did. Uh, I, I just focused. I had tunnel vision, you know, so I, I'm good at one thing at a time. <laughs> During that uh, Grand National Championship season, you won three races. Does anything stick out in that in that season to you, That why you won the championship or, or anything like that come to mind? Well, I think it was, mainly it was consistency. You know, I scored points in, in all kinds of racing, uh, road racing to short track to half mile to one mile ovals. Uh, so I scored points in all all four divisions, and it, it was just a matter of consistency. You know, I was starting to ride good. I was winning quite a few races. Uh, Ascot was my favorite track, and and I won okay. a lot of races there. But mainly it was just uh, consistency and, and going around the country. All right. See, what we you. would do in those days is we would uh, start the season at Ascot there in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at that time, they paid 40% of the gate went to the riders. Wow. So, uh, you know, that when the crowds started dropping off about mid-season, why the, the purses got smaller. So we'd all load up and go east because... Uh, instead of racing every Friday night, then we would race every Wednesday night in Chicago, every Thursday night and Friday night at some local fairgrounds, and then on the weekends you'd run the Nationals. So, you know, you run uh, four or five times a week. Pretty soon you get pretty good whether you want to or not, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you have to if you want to eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to eat. Yeah. And well, that's why we had there was not enough money in those days. So you had to ride all these little short tracks and everything in order to get – you know, $20 here and $20 there to add up to make a living. Well, uh, one other totally thing, unlike the salaries they get nowadays. Correct, correct, yeah. One other thing that I found interesting, too, is you completed the flat track Grand Slam, again, all on Harley-Davidson's, but you won the six, yeah, the 1965 Sacramento Mile, you won the 67 Castle Rock TT, a Salinas Half Mile 1968, and the Houston Astrodome, or Houston Short Track is what I have listed, in 1970. Did that mean something to you to, to complete that flat track Grand Slam, or was that just another... Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, very uh, much. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was a big deal, and... Houston was such a big deal at that time because we had never raced indoor before, and and they they just filled that place full of people. I mean, it was it was awesome. Yeah, I I loved going there as a little kid to to go watch the races. I I don't remember how many trips we made down there, and and I, I got a picture. Of my grandpa was a fast novice qualifier at one point, and 
it was on the screen. I got a picture of it. It's old black and white photo I have somewhere laying around here. So it was it was always huge to to do good at Houston at the Astrodome because that's where the season kicked off. Exactly. Yeah, you nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. I heard a story about Steve McQueen, and he was a very big part of of your life and helped you out through an injury. Can you explain that to us? Well, yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting story because uh, I had a flat tire at Daytona up on the banked wall, and so I fell off at like 150 miles an hour Mm. uh, from this uh, tire. In fact, I've got a photo sequence of of that accident. At any rate, uh, I had just come back and started re-racing again after injuries from there. I, I broke a... Oh, a bone in my wrist and and just scrapes and bruises, but I was I was like a rock when you skip it across water and it goes skip skip skip, mm-hmm. and I'd hit the ground and uh, tumble around and then it'd be silent and it was silent like three times before I slowed down enough to where I could Ooh. be in constant contact with the ground. Man, so I started racing again. Well, the first race back was uh, Castle Rock, Washington, and uh, Jim Rice fell in the first corner, and uh, I hit him. Uh, and my hand slipped off the handlebar and got uh, caught between the front forks and the frame, and it smashed it. Well, while, oh. while it was being smashed there, my body was going through the air, so it took the ulna and transferred it on the other side of the radius. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so going to the hospital that night, and the doctor says, you know, he took x-rays, and he says, well, kid, he says, there's nothing you can do when it's this bad. I'm going to give you some sedatives for tonight, and in the morning I'll come in and I'll fuse you from your knuckles to your elbow, and you're just going to have one bone for the rest of your life. Mm. So just think how you want it shaped. Do you want it to hook, or do you want it to point, or what do you want it to be like? And uh, luckily, my wife was there, and she says, no, I think we'll go find a a, a second uh, 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 opinion on this. And uh, the doctor says, well, you can, but you're wasting your time. You might as well get rid of the pain. So I was uh, in uh, Castle Rock, Washington State, Mm -hmm. and... I was in uh, Cal Rayburn's motorhome, so I, uh, at the time that it took to drive from Washington State to San Francisco, Steve heard about it, and he mm-hmm. called me and he said, "Hey, my doctor's in town doing a seminar. You got to go see him." So I, I took my X-rays up to his hotel room, and he just held them up to the the light there in the motel room, and uh, says, "Kid, he says you have some problems here, here, but I've got a guy that's better at this than I am. I want you to come to." Uh, Los Angeles and see this Dr. Stark, because this, the doc, first doctor I saw was Curlin, who was the uh, Rams doctor at the time. Okay. And uh, uh, so I came back and uh, I called Steve and I said, oh, he wants me to go to L.A. He says, I've had a bad year. I haven't been able to race. I'm, I'm just going to have my local guy do the best he can do. And Steve said, no way. He wouldn't hear of it. He sent me the airline ticket, <laughs> had his driver pick me up at the airport. They took me right into the hospital. And uh, by that time, the bones were starting to get sticky, so we caught it just in time. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, he, in fact, the hand was used in, in a medical journal after that, and of how to repair broken hands. Wow. And the doctor explained to me what he did. He says he just opened up the back of the hand, and he says, well, this pile of pieces is going to be this bone. That pile of pieces <laughs> is going to be that bone. Oh. And, and he just reconstructed it with, uh, had like seven pins going all through my my hands and uh, lower arm, keeping all the bones in place. And uh, so by that time, of course, I'm out running the AMA insurance. But uh, I don't, I don't know. Sure, Steve never really admitted it, but I never got a bill. He paid for everything. Oh, that's amazing! Amazing. Yeah. So that's being a friend. Absolutely, that's a good friend right there. 
Uh, later in your career, you retired from flat track in 1977, but you uh, you kind of started transitioning towards the end of your career. Like you mentioned a moment ago, to make these bikes go faster, you'd work on things and develop things to the frames and to the motorcycles. So you started transitioning from a racer to a fabricator even while you're still racing. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. Uh, I, I studied it, and then I, I had a good mentor, uh, C.R. Axtell, who's uh, ran the first flow bench down in, in L.A., so he was both an engine man and a chassis man, and we studied things together, and, and uh, I just just had to go to school and uh, learn what to do. And I, I learned, in fact, I would make a chassis that would handle perfect at Ascot, and I'd go back east, and because the tracks were so different, it wouldn't even qualify for the race at, at, at a back east race. Wow. Because the frames were so different. That's crazy. So what led, what, yeah, I can't even fathom that. I mean, you'd think a bike would be fast at every racetrack you go to, but it makes sense. I mean, I never got to race at Ascot myself, but, you know, you just have to set things up differently or learn to ride what you have. But it sounds like you would, you weren't happy with that. You'd make, make them go faster however you could. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, at Ascot, since it was so fast and the corners were so tight, you had to put a, a lot of weight bias to the front end and change the wheelbase and lower the engine in the chassis in order to, uh, uh, like I say, turn the throttle back on when you're already going too fast. (laughs) And uh, so when you load the front end and make make the front end uh, biased towards the front, you go back east, the tracks were slippery, then all I did was just spin the wheel. You couldn't go anywhere. So you had to have a completely different chassis for back east than you had out west. I gotcha. So, what what led to the transition to retiring to becoming you know a full time fabricator and then going on to build m- mountain bike frames and stuff like that? Well, I, I stopped racing because I, I developed what they call labyrinthitis, which is too much fluid in the inner ear, and it mm. causes a delay in your balance. Wow. And so my my balance wasn't good, so I had to stop racing. But mainly, I was not through racing. I still wanted to race, and that's yeah. the only profession that I knew. So I. I started getting different riders, and different riders rode my bikes. I won a lot of nationals with guys uh, like Steve Moorhead and, and different people that, that would win nationals for me, and Garth Brow was another one. Uh, so I made my living doing that until, uh, about, oh, until about 1990, and uh, 1980, I guess it was. I'll get wow. my years mixed up here. What's yep. 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I... Uh, uh, I made my living that way for, for quite a while, and then I got discouraged with the rules of, of the AMA, and a lot of the stuff that I was trying to do and test and change and everything were, were fastly becoming against the, the rules. So I got mad with the AMA, and I decided to sell everything, and uh, I, I quit quit the, the race team. I think 1980 was the last race team that I ran, and, uh, and then, then I got heavily into uh, to bicycles. And that, that's kind of interesting, too, because uh, uh, I built frames for the, for the flat trackers with a partnership with Terry Knight, with Knight mm-hmm. Frames. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we'd build frames, and I'd sell them. And at one time, we built all of the frames for the Harley factory, and my aftermarket frame was, was a different geometry. So at one time, every frame that was on the racetrack came through my hands one way or another, either through the Harley factory or through... Uh, my private one. Wow. So that that uh, that led to uh, to making all these frames. So, so one night uh, Terry and I were talking, and he says, "You know this this BMX thing is getting pretty big. Uh, 
let's make some BMX frames. So I go into my local bicycle shop down here, the Koski mm-hmm. Brothers, and I uh, said, yeah, I think I'll make some uh, some uh, BMX frames. And they said, oh, no, no, you got to make a mountain bike. And I said, well, what's a mountain bike? Because yeah. I didn't even know yet. And um, <laughs> so he gave me a, a frame to, to use as a, as a test model, as a sample. And uh, Terry and I made some mountain bike frames starting in the late 70s. And uh, I, I had a hard time getting dealers because I called it the Lawwell Mountain Bike. And every dealer would say, well, we don't go in the mountains. We don't need a, a mountain bike. So, mm. And now you'd have to use the, the name mountain bike to even be successful. <laughs> yeah, so I absolutely. changed the name from mountain bike to uh, pro cruiser because cruisers were big. Well, instantly okay. I had dealers every place all over the country, even in Hawaii. Wow. And uh, so I was, I was just ahead of my time as far as naming the the, the bicycle frame. <laughs> wow! So I made somewhere between three and four hundred of those uh, bicycle frames, and and there there there's a collector club even to this day now about the, the Pro Cruiser Law Wheel uh, bicycle frames. That's so cool. So not not only you're in the AMA Hall of Fame, but you went on to become in the the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, which is that's just awesome. Yeah, well, actually, I was in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame first. <laughs> man yeah i made my living racing motorcycles but i'm in the bicycle hall of fame <laughs> i guess it didn't make the, sense early on <laughs> it took the folks at the ama to, to to wake up and figure out what they're missing i guess yeah there you go <laughs> well let's talk about uh, from from fabricating bikes and and you know motorcycles to into prosthetics uh what led to this transition well uh chris dreyer and i were were uh factory harley uh riders you know, both of us raced for Harley, and we traveled together. And uh, he was in a bad accident at Sedalia, Missouri. And what happened was uh, it was a uh, was it half mile or a mile? I've forgotten. I a short mile, I believe, is what it was. At any rate, it was very dusty. And um, we were coming down the front straightaway, and it was so dusty that Chris couldn't see where he was going, so he didn't turn quick enough, and he slid down. And when he slid down, why? Well, uh, there, there was a guardrail around the outside of the racetrack because they raced automobiles there as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of these 12 by 12 posts that was holding up the guardrail, he was mm-hmm. sliding along just with his body, and he hit that post. Well, that took off his left arm. Oh my and, gosh! And so, among every, everything else, you know, I, I had to call his parents and tell them that well, he's had a bad accident, and the doctors told me there's no chance you can come if you want, but the, in no way he's going to make it. Because he not only took the arm off, I mean, he broke his hips, he broke his legs, arms, everything. I mean, it was a mess. Mm. So uh, his dad came, and and uh, they decided to rehabilitate, and they they got him going again. But So after he got going, well, then he says, uh, hey, I, I want you to make me a, a prosthetic uh, hand, starting with a hand and then an arm. And uh, I said, well, I don't know anything about prosthetics. And uh, that's why I said when the first one, one that I made him, why he took for a test ride and came back and said, that's the worst thing that I ever tried. Mm. So from that, I learned that your knuckles are where they are, your wrist is where it is, your elbows where it is. And if you don't mimic all of these things exactly, you know, an, an amputee will tell you instantly that, no, that something's wrong, doesn't work. So okay. even though, I said, how do you know? You don't even have an arm. How can you tell me if it's right or not? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> but your brain is hardwired, you know. It, it knows whether, what's right and what's not. Wow. That's incredible. So anyway, I made one. And so after I learned that, that you got to put these energy transfers precisely as, as what uh, the, the real human body does, then I made the second hand. And that's made almost no change from that second hand to what I'm in production with today. That's and, crazy. Uh, 
it started out slow. And the reason that I got into it, too, because not only did I make him the uh, the first test hand and the first hand that really worked, uh, and he says, you know, I travel a lot, and he says, I'm afraid I'm going to get where I'm going, and my hand is in the luggage, and they're going to lose the luggage, and then I'll get to the race, and I won't be able to to ride. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he says, I want you to make me a backup. So uh, this was, this was uh, 10 years later, because this started in about 80, and so about 90, so I called the, uh, some prosthetic companies and said, yeah, I think I'll make some prosthetic hands. What do you think? And they all advised me against it. They said, no way. They said, first of all, 90% of somebody that does not have a hand, the world's over, he can't do anything. And if those is left in, nobody that'd want to ride a motorcycle or a bicycle. Wow. And I got thinking to myself, I said, bullcrap, they just don't know they can do it. Right. So instead of making one, I, I went to my friend Dave Garut at DKG, and uh, he's got a, a, a CNC shop. So we together we worked out a design, and, and uh, we made just 20 of them on the on the first go around it as a test, see how it would go. And mm-hmm. it took me six months or a year to get rid of the first 20, but I got over 350 of those prosthetic hands in circulation now. Wow, wow. So it turns out that yeah, they just didn't know they could do it. Yeah. But once they learned they could ride, why? I mean, it just gives these kids kind of their life back again. You know, they can. They can go do what uh, uh, you know what they wanted to do all along. That's so crazy. I I, I love it. Um, I've heard some amazing stories of some folks whose lives you've changed forever for the better um, because of your prosthetics. Which one of the stories stick out in your mind? Well, uh, it's uh, Jake McCulloch out of Chicago. Uh, he he was born without a hand, so he was trying to race motocross, and and he's a back marker, of course. You know, doing it all with one arm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the kids were at that age, you know, he was like a teenager. They're kind of mean, and they're saying, you know, how are you doing today, Gimp? That sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, so he became real withdrawn and just, you know, kind of just, well, I'm here, but nobody needs to see me. And uh, then he saw a little film clip that I did with Chris Dreyer uh, about the hand, and Chris was talking about how good the hand worked and everything. So he and his dad, they called me, and they, they wanted to try one, so I, I got him a hand. And... Uh, it, it took him out of the closet, so to speak, and, and uh, put him on stage, and he became a motivational speaker for Shriners, even. Wow. For somebody that was hiding in the closet to become a motivational speaker, I thought was a pretty big step. Yeah, that's so amazing. So he, you know, it changed his life completely. And it sounds and fact, like... He's coming out for this race that's coming up here, this flat track race that we have. That's perfect. That was exactly what I want to talk to you about next. The first ever AMA adaptive race is coming up in Sonoma, California on 11, 20, and 21. Uh, are you going out there? And how many oh, riders? Course, yes. Okay, good. How many riders? I think there's 10 riders. Do they, do they yeah, all have there's 10 signed up that, that I'm aware of, yeah. So a bunch of them, they want to come by and meet me before the event. So they'll all be here the Friday night before. And we'll just have a social gathering here at my house. And then we'll go out to the race the next day. You know, I know our friend Jason Griffin has no no uh, right arm, so he doesn't have a prosthetic. How many of these riders have you helped out, and how many have the Mert Lawwell prosthetics? Well, there's only going to be three of them entered at this particular race, but like I said, I've got over 350 of those prosthetic hands in circulation now. So that's a bunch of people out there, which is, that's not a big number for manufacturing, but it is if you're one of that 350 and you get your, your life back again, then it's Absolutely. a big deal. Absolutely. How cool is it to see a race with only adaptive racers in it? 
Well, I think that's just outstanding. I, you know, I'll go back to my earlier statement when I said when I called the prosthetic companies and said, "Don't bother. Nobody wants to ride a bicycle or a motorcycle," and and now they're having a whole race that's just for them. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I love it that they're doing that. Of course, there's going to be other classes involved. It's not just you know this one race, but I'm I'm glad that they are including the adaptive race in this big event. Yes, I, I am too. I, I'm really really uh, happy with it. That's why I'm supporting it diligently. Awesome. Do you watch the the races today, the American Flat Track right now? Are you are you are you? Yeah, yeah, I watch on? that, but I'm mainly a fan of MotoGP. Oh, right on. I haven't watched any MotoGP. I, I did hear Mark Marquez is going to skip the next two rounds to focus on getting better for next year. I just heard that today. Yes, yeah, that's that's. I, I read that as well. All right. What are your What are your current thoughts on on the the sport of American flat track? Do you think it's on the rise again? I mean, we're on national TV and stuff like that. I know you said you're you're more into the MotoGP, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. Back in the beginning, when I first went to Ascot, there were so many riders that they'd have even numbered riders one night. The next Friday night, you'd have the odd number riders. There was that okay. many and there's too many entries to uh, you know to count almost. Mm -hmm. And then um, it kind of died off, and it kind of went into nowhere where just not much was going on, and I thought a lot of it was the rules-making of the AMA. But that was just my personal thought. Okay. And uh, uh, so now to see it come back to where they have that many riders once again uh, is a very thrilling thing. So I'm very highly supportive of, of the AMA flat track now. Awesome, awesome. We kind of left out the, the movie on any Sunday, kind of on purpose, because I'm sure you get asked about it a lot. But uh, we have people that support our uh, podcast, and they're called pa patrons. Um, and one of our patrons asked asked us to ask you, what is your favorite Bruce Brown memory? Uh, well, you mean part of the film, you mean? Any, it doesn't matter. Any Bruce Brown memory, what's your favorite one? Yeah, well... His favorite part of the film, and mine as well, is when I'm walking down the street with a business suit, and uh -huh. then it flashes to a flat track uh, where I'm going sideways. Oh yeah. You know that transition period. That's his favorite uh, film clip of the uh, of the movie. Yeah. But he was such a character. I mean, he's just so full of personality that you know he he traveled with me because he says you know he says I don't want this thing to be a made up Hollywood movie. He says I want it to be the real thing. So he actually came to my house here in San Francisco, jumped in the van with me, and we drove together back east, you know, cross wow. country, and because uh, he wanted it to be authentic, he wanted it to be the real thing. That's so cool. He's such a good personality. I mean, you just have a tummy ache from laughing all the time. <laughs> He's such yeah. a character. Yeah. Well, well, that movie inspired so many people to start racing. I'm, I'm really good friends with Ronnie Jones, and he said it was just because of On a Sunday was the reason him and his brother started racing flat tracks. So I just think it's so cool, man. I, I love the movie. I still watch it from time to time. It's, it's amazing. How can a movie be 50 years old and you still want to watch it? <laughs> I know. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just one recent... funny little thing, just a little tidbit that sure. I just thought of here. Uh, when I first uh, met Stephen and was going to do the filming of uh, uh, down on on the beaches, mm -hmm. why well, we stayed at Bruce's house there in uh, San Clemente. Okay. And we, we went in into uh, the kids' bedroom, and uh, Steve and I walked in together, and he looked around the wall and he says, "Don't your kids ever go to the movies? Because there was no <laughs> Steve McQueen pictures anywhere. It was all motorcycles." <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that. 
That's great. That is so cool. Um, just recently, uh, you got to spend some time with a friend of ours, uh, Evan Send, who who we've met through this podcast, and he's a, a, an enthusiast now. He's he's hooked on flat track like we are. He's doing a movie on the XR750. It's a little short film. Uh, we don't want to give away too much information about the film, but do you have anything that you could tease about your part in this movie? Well, he he came by and he he stayed. Uh, you know, he's gonna he says, "I'll just shoot for a couple hours. Give me a couple hours." We ended up staying, uh, you know, till late at night. Uh huh. Because you know, we just had so much to talk about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed Evan uh, very much. He was he was a good guy. Yeah, I can't wait to see the movie and and especially to see your part in the movie. I think it's going to be great. Well, you know, there's another part that's probably not been made a big deal of, but back in the day, you know, the AMA was trying to look professional. So, first of all, uh, only only men could be in the pits, no women. Okay. And second of all, uh, you had to wear whites. Right. You know, so the, so you, uh, the idea so was to look seen. professional. Okay. And uh, I had my baby uh, Joe, and uh, June was with me, and uh, she said. No, I'm not going to sit in the stand. Says I'm coming down in the pits where where I was, uh-huh. and uh, so she really she bucked the AMA and the referee uh, Red was his name. Uh-huh. Oh, he was so upset uh, about that that women were in the pits. That was just unprofessional. But uh-huh. she broke the bubble and uh, uh, got women started to be allowed in the pits. That's so cool because because they're in the pits now and you know almost every oh, rider has a <laughs> yeah every rider has a, a a wife or a girlfriend they're in the pits and actually we have some girls racing too so uh, I'm, exactly. I'm glad well, that's that come we, a long way yeah we owe that all to your wife well nobody hardly knows it you know but I know that's where it started that's so cool well tell her thank you for us for sure um, we're we're nearing the end of the podcast and and my grandma which is Graham uh, she has a question in every podcast and she's been watching you your entire career my grandfather raced uh, along the same times but so she's into a lot of nationals but, but she just wants to know you're about the same age she thinks but she wants to know will you ever slow down i don't think so i'm 80 now <laughs> yeah wow okay no reason to slow down now right not now no not till i tip uh, over <laughs> there you go well, I've I've had a lot of fun with you, and here to uh to to finish up the podcast, we have some rapid fire questions. So tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you these next few questions. Are you ready? Okay. I think I know the answer to this one, but what's the favorite bike you've ever ridden? Well, for many years it was the BSA Gold Star, but okay. uh, uh, that's that's how I started my racing career, riding for the BSA dealer there in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the BSA guys were my heroes, and Harley guys, you know they were just they were bad news. I didn't want anything to do with them then. <laughs> but uh, then after I got to be on a Harley, why you know in the end why the KR Flathead was probably it was one of my favorites because you could race it all year long and you rebuild it once in the winter and once in the summer and you could race race after race oh. after race there versus the the work that it takes to keep a uh, XR 750 running nowadays. Okay, all right. What is your but favorite I'm also very track? partial to the XR750 because I did an awful lot of uh, co-development work with CR Axtell on that thing and, and Dick O'Brien. And right. Bill Warner did an awful lot, too, of, of developing with that engine. Yeah, we, we talked to him last week, and that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, you had a, a tough season when they filmed you on any Sunday because you're running the old cast iron XR750, and it wasn't until like the, the year after that before they started not having as many problems. 
That, that's right. Well, because the the reason it had the problems is because it was a it was a cast iron engine, so it ran too hot. But b all the inside geometry was incorrect. Uh, the mm. border stroke ratio, the rod length ratio, all of those were were incorrect for a race bike. And, but it was okay. never meant to be a race bike. I mean, it was meant to be a street bike. Yeah. Wow. So the end of that story is that it uh, uh, it melted down almost every week, or, okay. or something would break. And yep. uh, so you you know you're so busy doing all of the the major overhauls to get the thing back on the track again that you didn't have time for the little stuff like my broken throttle cable at, uh, at uh, Columbus. You yeah. know, little stuff like that would catch up to you because you didn't have time. You're doing the big stuff first. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Next question on the rapid fire is, what's your favorite racetrack? Ascot, without a doubt. Okay. Who's the, the greatest flat tracker of all time? Well, I don't know about necessarily flat tracker. There's a couple of great ones. You know, Dick Mann is uh, one of them, and uh, okay. Kenny Roberts. Uh, Kenny Roberts okay. could ride anywhere. We used to go trail riding together, and well, he would ride like a, like a wild man. You couldn't believe it what he could get away with oh yeah but uh those were my two favorite racers okay i like it who's your your favorite person to go bench racing with <laughs> oh anybody that wants to talk i guess <laughs> i love that that's that's my favorite answer to that question so far um the next one is is they've had some rough years here lately do you think harley's ever going to make a comeback well it looks like this year they're already starting that you know, okay. they're, they're starting to win some events with their, their new motor. And I studied engines for years. I mean, that was one of my fortes. And mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, so I understand the, all the mechanical uh, dimensions inside the engine as well. And I've been puzzled all along that, that it's actually taken them this long to become competitive because that's a good engine. I mean, okay. that should be really good. Yeah, I, I don't know what the problem is. I you know I've heard people having you know troubles hooking the horsepower. They got they say they've got plenty of horsepower. They just having trouble hooking them up. So maybe it's not the engine. Maybe it's the chassis. Uh, you know I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not that smart. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a chassis guy, so I'm I'm gonna blame the chassis. There you go. All right, I like it. And my last question to you, um, we kind of borrow from Dave Despain, who's one of my heroes. Uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, of course, uh, getting a number one. And the other thing is just being a part of on any Sunday. Awesome. Bert Lawwell, you are an amazing person. I really appreciate the time. Before we let you go, do you want to say thanks to anybody? Well, probably anybody that's in the motorcycle world. I love them all. Oh, so cool. Uh, Mert, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, you got it. I think a lot of the times when we do what we do or we talk about these people, the word legend is thrown around a lot. Like, if there ever was a legend uh, in the sport, this guy's it. And we, we just talked to him, dude. A former Grand National Champion. He's done probably more for the sport than we would ever even get to talk about. But And, you know, building bikes, changing things on motorcycles, uh, just because he was a rider and he knew what he needed to do to make the bike go faster, that's incredible. And then what he did after that, uh, just and what he's continuing to do at 80 years old, he's just amazing, uh, such a great person, and I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, a lot of people say he was like groundbreaking as a rider because not a lot of riders were looking at how to make their own motorcycles fast, and uh, and he did that. Um, and I don't know, I think uh, what he did after he got off the motorcycle is a testament to to any rider that's 
written in the past or is writing today, life isn't over after you, you quit racing motorcycles. You, you can take that, you can take that passion, you can take that drive and put it into something else and be just as or more successful um, than you ever were on a motorcycle. And I think that uh, Mert is the perfect example of that. And uh, man, I, I, I'm I'm gonna be shaking my head in disbelief for we had Bill Warner last week, Mert Walwell this week. You gotta pinch me, dude. I'm waking up like, is this is this real? Like, this podcast that we did and we're putting together, like, it's gotten to the point where we're talking to the Michael Jordans and like uh, of flat track. Like, how how? I mean, we put a lot of work into it, but damn, man, it's super right. It's it's pretty cool, and you know, for him to be gracious, to take the time out uh, of his morning. We called him early this morning out in California time. Yeah. It was great. Uh, the stories after we stopped recording were, were just as good. <laughs> he got a little bit more into the off the Sunday. I, I feel bad, though, because when uh, they followed him on the movie, they were still t- working on the, the XR, and it had it had the iron cases and had a lot of mechanical issues, and, and he could have been a repeat champion if they maybe weren't working on the, the, the iron cast XR. If, they, yeah. if, they were, if he still run the KR, he could have repeated as a champion. It's the ifs. You know, coulda, shoulda, all that stuff. But uh, a talented rider uh, completed the flat track Grand Slam. As soon as I said that, before I could even finish saying it, he he said how important that was to him. Yeah, you know, no, it's a big deal. And, it, so. and, and the loyalty that he showed to Harley um, is pretty cool and unique. Uh, you know, a lot of riders sometimes rode the same stuff, but they didn't have the success that he had on it. And to right, s- stick right. with them after that fame uh, and, and all that attention, it just speaks to his character as well. Um, <laughs> I'm going to listen back to this one myself. I, I, I listen to it when we record. I probably listen to it two or three times when we edit. Uh, but I'm going to go back and probably listen to this one a couple times more because what a, what a story. Love that dude. It was such a great, such a great one. Um, I guess we don't have to say goodbye because I'm going to see you tomorrow. Damn right. Technically. You're going to be down here tomorrow picking you up from the airport tomorrow night. And uh, depending on how long you stay, man, I might be sick of you by the time you, you head back home. Well, I, right now I have a one-way flight because you said I could move in with you. I just, mean, uh, we didn't approve that through Boo. Yeah, but. just hang hang out down here until the start of the 2021 season, and we'll uh, we'll we'll do weekly shows here. That'll be great. Sounds fun. Yeah. I'll bring my Mac. I'll bring my microphone yeah. and my headphones. Yeah, and I'll see you tomorrow. Love it. All right, dude. Safe travels down. Um, look forward to seeing you on the Patreon next week. Uh, hopefully, I'll get all this shit in order and YouTube will work. Uh, process but you're here to see it all happen so when it's actually a show like well-oiled machine you could say i've been there from the beginning there you go no? thanks to all of our followers thanks for all of our patrons uh follow us on patreon we're gonna try to make some content for you uh this upcoming week while i'm down in florida everybody uh keep it on four wheels if you're on two wheels keep it on two wheels and we'll talk to you next week peace later
I'm kind of new to the world, man. I'm four years in, but I've definitely caught the bug. You're not going to believe this, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this to the Mert Lawwell, but I've, I'm hitting 40 in December, and I've never thrown a leg over a motorcycle, so i got to solve that here soon but uh oh boy yeah you do <laughs> uh, why don't you watch this film called on any sunday you'll I, like it I, I, <laughs> 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 oh, oh man